Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our, our study of the Scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those and turn them open to Luke chapter 1. There was an artist by the name of Edward Byrne Jones who was a, a painter in the mid-1900s. And he was most revered and famous for going into big cathedrals and revitalizing stained glass windows. But he was also remarkable at, at uh, putting together these vivid watercolor paintings. And one of his favorite things to paint were angels' wings. And so one of his works that he uh, painted in Rome is called A Vision of Angels. I just want to show it to you this morning. This picture of a vision of angels. Is it up? I can't say it is. All right. Well, uh, like many artists, Jones was a guy who believed that art was a form of, he saw art as a form of protest. At the time he was painting these watercolors, he recognized that a materialistic view of the world was growing in popularity and then any thought of spirituality or any thought of, of the supernatural, uh, especially that what you find within the Christian faith, he, he saw those things waning in popularity. And he saw how people started to believe that science could account for and explain everything that we experience in the world that is. It was the seeds of the mentality that would bear the fruit of that sign over I-5 right now that says science is God. Well, that ideology was starting at the start of the 20th century, and it was something that this artist saw as a problem. He saw that belief in the spirituality that according to or to supernatural, according to many people, is no longer needed, and that science and faith were just being thrown into the octagon to fight each other and to be pitted against each other. And so people like Luke, the author of our gospel today, who was both a man of science and a man of faith, those people were hard to find. And so what he did was he decided to start painting angels' wings and just littering all of his work with angels' wings. And he wrote a letter to a guy by the name of Oscar Wilde, and this is what he said. He said, the more materialistic science becomes, the more angels shall I paint. Their wings are my protest in favor of the immortality of the soul. Their wings are my protest. It's a world that closes itself off from the spiritual or closes itself off from the supernatural is a world full of dreams that are far too small. What finite creatures can achieve and what people like you and I can accomplish with the resources available to us in the material world, all those resources are limited but that doesn't mean we can't accomplish things. It doesn't mean we can't achieve great things, even if what we can achieve is cloning a sheep or colonizing Mars. Whatever you and I can accomplish apart from God is in service to a dream that is far too small. And though there are many things that are possible, many goals that are attainable, what we dream of doing if what we dream of can be done apart from the presence and the power of God, then we're selling ourselves short. We're selling the city of Seattle short. We're selling the world that we inhabit right now short because those types of dreams cannot account for what is needed 
ultimately for human beings to truly and eternally flourish. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to take our Bibles and turn them open to the Gospel of Luke as we continue walking through the story of Jesus, which, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, this is a story for sinners and sufferers like us. And my hope as we do so today is that we would recalibrate our dreams that our dreams would be recalibrated, our dreams would be realigned, that the small dreams of what is possible would be replaced with dreams of the impossible. Dreaming the types of things that can only occur if the Lord is at work. The types of dreams that can only happen if the Holy Spirit begins to move in ways that only He can. We want our lives and we want our church to be swept up in the story of Jesus so that our lives and so that our church might become a visual protest, declaring that nothing of eternal or lasting significance is impossible with God. And so let's pray to become visual protests, declaring to the city of Seattle that there is far more to this thing called life than what we realize. And we're going to learn this lesson today by looking at a passage Uh, where we are introduced to a small-town girl who would become that. That this small-town girl named Mary would become a visual protest for many people as they would see the Lord working the supernatural out in her life, seeing the Lord do things within her and through her that the world desperately needed. And so we're introduced to her beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1, but understand that her story started long before this moment. Her story actually began in the very beginning of the Bible. When God created the world and He declared it good, then He formed man and woman in His his own image. He placed them in the Garden of Eden where they would enjoy one another and enjoy His presence. And then you know the story that the serpent, who would later be made known as Satan himself, came and just wrecked things. He whispered lies that both Eve and Adam believed, and it wrecked everything. And immediately after, our Adam and Eve, the first humans, sinned against the Lord. We're told that God came and He began to divvy out some consequences. Well, one of the consequences that He divvied out to the serpent was this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it speaks to the woman we're going to meet in this passage. There the Lord said to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he's going to strike your head and you will strike his heel. What he's saying there is that the woman is going to lead to the birth of one who would come to defeat and crush the head of the serpent or the head of Satan. Many years later, the prophet Isaiah would dial into this dynamic and he would get more clarity on that revelation, more clarity on this promised one who would come in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And he would say, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, here it is. The virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And so this small town girl, her story started long before this moment when we are told beginning of verse 26 that in the sixth sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. 
The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. So here we have this moment where the Lord sends an angel named Gabriel, the same angel we were introduced to last week who met with Zechariah in the temple. Now he's going to a place called Nazareth. And I can only imagine that when the Lord said, okay, Gabriel, go to Nazareth, that Gabriel might have responded with, wait, where? Where am I supposed to go? Did you say Nazareth? Where is that? And Gabriel then had to pull out his smartphone and look it up on the map, figure out where to go to get to this little podunk town that no one had really heard of before. For the town of Nazareth doesn't appear in the Old Testament. The town of Nazareth doesn't appear in the Apocrypha. There's no significance to Nazareth that you find anywhere in the Scriptures. And yet this is where Gabriel is to go. Gabriel might have scratched his head. Are you sure you don't mean Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem, that's where everything happens. That's where religious and spiritual life, that's the epicenter of all of that. Are you sure you don't want me to go there? And the Lord is like, no, you're going to Nazareth. You heard me right. And so he looks it up on a map and he goes to this little one red light kind of town, the kind of town that if you blink, you're going to miss it, the kind of town that nobody uh, plans to go or builds their travel itinerary around visiting a place like Nazareth. Now, there is a town in Washington State called Grace, and Grace is the smallest town in the state. It's located on the line between King and Snohomish County, and it's about 0.6 miles long. So you can walk through this town in under 10 minutes. There are only 12 citizens, last I checked, 12 citizens actually inhabiting the town of Grace. So it's a teeny tiny little town that you can easily overlook and you can easily miss. But the cool thing about Grace is that the people there have quite the sense of humor, and they, there's some charm to this little town. But when you think about the town of Nazareth, this small, insignificant place that no one was ever worried about or concerned with, it didn't come with the same kind of charm that a town like Grace comes with. No, Nazareth was a shoddy town. It was this corrupt halfway spot between the ports of Tyre and Sidon. And nobody went there. It had a reputation to it. So there's a moment in John chapter 1, verse 46, where Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, would even ask the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it wasn't a reputable place. It was a shady, shoddy little town. And Nathaniel wondered what everybody wondered. He said quiet things out loud. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yet this is exactly where the Lord would send Gabriel. This minister, this messenger, this angel of God would go there and he would meet with a virgin named Mary. Now, if you have a background in Christianity or you've been around the church, you, you, depending on what kind of tradition you have been exposed to or come out of, you know that Mary is viewed in basically two kinds of extremes. On one side, if you are familiar with the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic expression of, of church life, you know that they have a tendency to think way too much of Mary. 
that they tend to pray to Mary at times, and they can tend to view Mary as a type of co-mediator, someone who's on par with Christ and can give you extra access to Jesus. And that's a thought, that's a belief that many people have. And in my study of the scriptures, it's a belief that makes too much of Mary. But on the polar opposite side of that, in more evangelical Protestant circles, what we have done, if we've reacted so hard against that, that we now make too little of Mary. And we overlook her. We dismiss her. In some ways, we denigrate her in our theology. And we denigrate her in our church life and our approach to the faith. But understand that Mary would fulfill a very significant and a very unique role in the history of humanity. That this young, small-town girl would give birth to the God-man. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I think that's a pretty big deal. So maybe we don't have to run to the other side of the room, which is what our culture tends to do with ideas and thoughts, where we live in corners and we go to extremes. I think maybe we can come to the middle of the room and we can have a healthy respect for Mary and the way that the Lord would use her in His redeeming purposes because the angel of God was sent to meet with her. This specific young girl. Yeah, she was a virgin. She hadn't slept with her fiancé as she was engaged with a man named Joseph. And we know that Joseph was a blue-collar worker, worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. And we know that David, uh, Joseph had a strong lineage, like he could trace his heritage many centuries prior and actually find himself in the, in the blood current of David, which was a big deal. But he's still working in Nazareth, which means somewhere along the lines, he too was kind of overlooked. And that the lineage of David was kind of pushed aside and wasn't thought much of. And, and yet Mary here is engaged to him. Now, the culture here is quite different. We don't get engaged nowadays at the ages of 12 to 15 or 12 to 16, which is likely how old Mary was when all of this goes down in her life. She, she's a young teenage girl. She is not the woman that you see depicted in Western art coming out of the Renaissance period. She is not the glowing face, grown woman with a halo behind her head. This is a young, dirty, a young peasant girl with dirty feet. She was one that was easily overlooked. She carried no weight or no significance in her social circles. She was a young teenage virgin peasant girl. Most likely, she was illiterate because girls her age were not taught to read back in the day. So she wasn't educated. She didn't have many prospects for a good life. And so you can imagine this peasant girl standing outside of Nazareth and looking up into the sky and and although she could see a million miles at night, she, she wasn't going very far. There weren't many prospects for her to have a good life. She wasn't dreaming big because she didn't live in a place or have the kind of life where dreams were welcomed and thoughts like that were invited. But yet of all the people and of all the places God could have chosen, of all the people and all the places that Gabriel could have been sent to, he is sent to this place to meet with this girl. And this girl is going to bring the Son of God into the world. A guy by the name of Martin Luther put it this way. He says, Gabriel might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold-embroidered clothing, 
and attended to by a retinue of maids in waiting, but God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. And so what we begin to think about then is how no one is too far and no one is too low for the grace of God to reach. No one is too far, no one is too low for the supernatural to invade and for the supernatural to do the things that only God can do. And this is what she heard when Gabriel saw her and she looks up and whatever this encounter was like, the first word he would speak to her is greetings. Another translation for that is to rejoice. Favored woman, the Lord is with you. And that word favored is the word grace. He's saying greetings, woman who is being graced, woman who's being treated far better than anyone deserves. Greetings, rejoice to you for the Lord is with you. It's a remarkable moment. That this small town girl living in a lonely world is about to be set on a journey. See what I did there, Jeremy? <laughs> Only a couple of you will get that one. But notice how she responded. She hears this word of grace, this incredible greeting. She should have been thrilled, but notice she says, but she was deeply troubled by this statement. She got afraid of this moment. And I wonder what troubled her about this. I wonder what frightened her in this. Of course, you know, she's meeting an angel. You don't do that every day. So it's possible she's just afraid of what she sees and this encounter that she's having. But notice that her fear is attached to the statement, to the fact that the, the angel has said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. It's the statement. It's what the angel said to her that troubled her most. Maybe she realized that wherever grace comes, grace intends to shake things up. That grace never touches down in anyone's life without turning that life upside down. And a lot of times when grace invades a person's life, the near term or the immediate outcome of that experience isn't very exciting and it isn't very uplifting. You think about Noah. This is the same type of word that came to Noah when, when he found favor in the eyes of God. And then what did the Lord tell him he was going to do? He was going to build an ark in the middle of an arid land because a flood was coming, something that no one had ever seen before. And yet Noah is to spend the next 120 years of his life constructing this boat to rescue a remnant of people from the judgment that was coming. It's a bizarre dynamic. And you can imagine the longer that Noah worked on this ark and the more the heavens remained you know, bright and blue and no rain was falling from the sky. You can imagine people just standing aside and just mocking him, making fun of him. Noah feeling like he had to justify his life over and over and over again because the world around him wasn't very attuned to what he was doing. People didn't understand him. Grace had come and grace had shaken things up. And in the immediate future, life for him would get awkward. Or you think about Mary, grace coming to this young peasant girl. And you think about what life is going to get like for her. Life is going to get strange. Life is going to get awkward. Life is going to be difficult. This young girl is not going to be able to fit into her wedding dress. 
in a society that would look down upon that sequence of events. This young girl would be viewed with suspicion and cynicism. Why? Well, because grace came to her. And grace was going to shake things up. See, the grace of God, every time it touches down in a person's life, it it intends to shake everything up. And when it does, oftentimes we find ourselves not more comfortable in this life, but less comfortable in this life. We find ourselves being swept up in a story that most people don't agree with. A story that most people aren't excited about. We lean into a rhythm of life that others might look and see and just scratch their heads wondering, why would you believe that? Why would you say that? Why would you do that? And our answer over and over and over again is grace. Grace has come. And when grace touches down, it changes everything. For this young peasant girl, she's going to give birth to a to a special sacred son, we're told in verse 30. Because after she's troubled and she's, she knows that things for her are about to change, she doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, the angel clarifies for her in verse 30. The angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Saying, look, you are going to give birth to a sacred son. And he refers to this child that's going to grow in her womb, that she's going to lead into the world as being great. Now, earlier... Gabriel told Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, would be great, but John the Baptist would be great in the eyes of the Lord. But what you see about Jesus' greatness in contrast with that is that there's no qualification. Jesus will just be great. No qualifiers needed. Jesus will be great. Now, his greatness is tied to a couple of things that we can say about who Jesus would be for us and who Jesus is for us now. And we know he's going to be great because he's the mediator. This is one of the dynamics of Jesus, this, this, the Son of God being born of a virgin. It was to preserve the fact that this Jesus would be fully God and fully human all at the same time. And in doing so, the fact that Jesus did not have an earthly dad, it sort of put him in the same current as Adam, the first man. If you know his story, he didn't have an earthly dad either. But if you know Adam's story, you'll know that Adam did not maintain fidelity and faithfulness to the calling of God on his life. And so Adam would fail miserably in being who the Lord intended him to be. And yet Jesus, the great one, he he will succeed where Adam fails. And because Jesus would live his life in obedience to his heavenly father, he would be sinless all the days of his life. Because of that, he would serve as the great mediator, as the, as the one who would mediate our relationship with God in a unique way, in an unqualified way, in a tremendous way. But not only would he be the great as far as his, the fact that he's a mediator, he's great 
Because this sacred son is going to be born to the Virgin Mary, is going to be the messianic king. That this sacred son would be the one that all the prophets spoke of. This sacred son is the one that history has been clamoring for. That redemption has been desiring. This is who this sacred son will be. We know this because the language Gabriel uses, it echoes language found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When the Lord makes his covenant with David and he promises a messianic king is coming. Listen to what is said there. The Lord declares to you, referring to David, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. This is who's coming. This is who's going to be born into the world. The messianic king whose kingdom will have no end, whose reign will be eternal, who will be everything that we need and more. And so when you think about this language and you think about Jesus being the king of this forever kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end, we, we can't help but step back and ask ourselves, whose kingdom are we more concerned with? And I think we're living in a very unique point in human history and a very unique point in American culture where many people who identify as Christians are far more preoccupied with earthly kingdoms than they are with the eternal kingdom of God. And as we are far more concerned with earthly kingdoms, what that reveals is that somewhere along the line, we have forgot to dream big. Our dreams are far too small. If what you want most in the world is for, for a certain candidate to be elected, you're dreaming way too small. If what you want most in the world is for a certain law to be passed, your dreams are far too small. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but I am definitely saying they are not ultimate. And I'm definitely saying that they grab... They are holding too many hearts with too strong of a grip. We know this because you can't look on social media without seeing Christians fight, without seeing Christians slander, without seeing Christians argue, without seeing Christians point fingers of blame. And so we must ask ourselves when we think about this coming king, this great messianic king, is whose kingdom are you and I going to be about? What are we going to be about in this life? Are we dreaming too small? Or our dreams, are they focusing on the eternal kingdom of God? Are we praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in Seattle as it is in heaven. Is that our prayer? And if it is our prayer, are we aligning our lives up with what we are praying? There's a real dynamic that is, as we pray, we should move our feet. As we're praying, we are moving in the direction of our prayers in accordance to the, to the will and the ways and the wonder and the power of our God. Now, many Christians perhaps have lost confidence in this dynamic. 
Perhaps the pandemic has knocked your breath out. And you, you don't have the confidence of believing that the Lord can do the miraculous or that the Lord can do anything of eternal and lasting significance. And maybe you're just struggling. Struggling, you're, you're more concerned with what you can control because you're not trusting in the God that you can't. And so we think about this passage and we wonder, you know, Mary wasn't very confident at first either. The Lord has said this great stuff is about to happen. This great gift is about to be given. And she's not very thrilled. And she's not confident. She even asks a question. She says, how can this be in verse 34 since I have not had sexual relations with a man? That's a fair question. You know, she, she's, the, she's had the talk with her mom and dad. She knows where babies come from. And she knows that those babies don't come from storks or they're not diamonds that hatch under their mom and dad's pillow. That, that, that babies come from a certain place, a result of a certain act. And she's confident in knowing that she's never been there and done that. So she says, how can this be since I've never had sexual relations with a man? And she's asking an honest question. Now, if you remember from last week, Zechariah asked a question as well, but he wasn't treated as gracefully as Mary is in this moment. Zechariah asked a question that showed that he wasn't quite believing what Gabriel was saying. And, and so what happened was Gabriel told him to be quiet and didn't let him talk again until his child, John the Baptist, was born. And so we see a picture there of how the Lord gracefully silenced his unbelief. So that when John the Baptist was born, this, this picture of this gift from God could be cherished and unbelief could be banished and silenced from our lives. It's a remarkable thing, but the question is why? Why was he silenced but Mary not? Well, I think it has to do with who Zechariah was. He was a priest who should have known the Bible really well. He should have known the story of Abraham and Jacob. Basically, every patriarch you can think of, their child was born because born from a barren woman. And so Zechariah had a little bit more to draw from than perhaps this illiterate peasant girl. And so Gabriel treats her with a little bit more gentleness, a little bit more grace. But then there's also the dynamic that what Gabriel is saying is going to go down in Mary's life is unprecedented. This has never happened before. Older, barren women have given birth in the history of God's people. In fact, it's happened many times. But a virgin has never given birth. So there's an unprecedented uh, element to what's happening with Mary. And Zechariah shows just the graceful, accommodating presence and goodness of God in our lives. That yes, we want him at times to treat our unbelief seriously. We want him to silence our unbelief when needed. But we also want him to be patient with us when we're struggling. And the good thing about our God and the God that Gabriel's representing in this moment is that the Lord knows how to shepherd his people. He knows when to be heavy-handed. And he knows when to be tender. He knows when to be somewhat harsh, and he knows when to be very gentle. And so Mary here is experiencing the gentleness of God's grace and how Gabriel would respond. And so what does Gabriel do? Well, he draws her attention to a sovereign God in verse 35. Verse 35, the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit would come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. 
Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. So he calls her attention to a sovereign God and the imagery there of the Holy Spirit coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. The imagery there is very akin to what happens in Genesis chapter 1 when the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the face of the deep and everything is dark, everything is lifeless. The Spirit of the Lord hovering over it all, getting ready to bring life out of nothing. This is what Gabriel tells her. The Lord can bring life out of nothing. It's the same God who created the universe, controls the universe. The same God who wove into the fabric of the created order, natural law. This same God can usurp those laws for his purposes. And this is what he's going to do in your life. He's going to work in a way that brings life out of nothing. Your virginity is not a barrier to the promise and the word of God that he is speaking to you. But then he goes one step further and he says, now consider your cousin, consider your relative Elizabeth. Think about what's going on in her life. And, and Mary then is, is being brought to this point where she's thinking about, okay, the Lord isn't just at work in my life. He's at work in the lives of others. And so I need to consider what he's doing in other people's lives because when I consider what he's doing there, I can find confidence in what he's doing in me. This is why testimonies are so important. Testimonies remind us that God isn't at work just in the past, but that God is at work right now in the present. And when we're sharing those testimonies and we're declaring what God is doing right now, it gives us confidence for the future. And so Mary is told to consider Elizabeth. Go hear her testimony. Be encouraged. And so you and I would do well to step back and to consider whether or not we are sharing with each other about what God is doing in our lives. Are we opening our lives up and sharing them with one another to the degree that we are pointing out the real-time hand of God at work in the here and now? And so you have this charge, consider Elizabeth, but then the most powerful phrase in the whole text is there at the end of verse 37. Where Gabriel tells Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. You might want to circle that sentence, put some exclamation marks beside it. This is where our faith wants to be. We want to be the kinds of men and women who believe that nothing will be impossible with God. We want to be the kinds of people who are tuned in to what human beings truly and eternally need in order to flourish so that we can align our lives up with dreams that are bigger than the here and now. With eternal dreams that are the size of the kingdom of God that are filled up with the concerns of the kingdom of God, so that we wonder, can sinners really be forgiven? Can I really be forgiven for what I have done? Can I really be forgiven, or will I be forever canceled by the creator of the universe? Then we come to this moment and we remind ourselves that nothing will be impossible with God, not even the forgiveness of your sins. You think about what ails you. What afflicts you? You think about your sicknesses and your pain and your suffering, then you wonder, is there any healing out there for a sufferer like me? Can sicknesses be healed? And you read through the story of Jesus, and you see Jesus over and over and over again bringing healing to those who are sick. And you read in the story of Jesus of how nothing will be impossible with God, not even 
healing. And so what does this mean for us? Well, does this mean that we're we going to align our lives up with the story of Jesus? Are we bold enough to pray for healing? Are we bold enough to ask Jesus to do the things that only He can do? You might wonder, well, if I pray for somebody's healing and it doesn't happen, then I'm going to be ridiculed. Maybe. I suspect Mary was ridiculed as her womb began to grow too. But in time, what happened? In time, she gave birth. And in time, the word and the promise of God was fulfilled. The confidence that we have as followers of Jesus is that in time, all of our wounds will be healed. All of our sicknesses will be alleviated. And so we do ask for God to give us those moments in the here and now, but we trust that in the end, it's coming. Because nothing will be impossible with God. So He's going to forgive sins. He's going to heal all sicknesses. He's going to cast out all demons. You wonder about how much havoc the enemy wreaked in people's lives, and you wonder, will the enemy really be defeated? Will he be pushed back? And then you come to this passage, and you remind yourself nothing will be impossible with God because the one born to this virgin is going to be the one who crushes the serpent's head. And then you go one step further and you think about dead, what death is. And you ask yourself, can death really be defeated? Can the dead really be raised? Well, nothing will be impossible with God. And so we lean into that dynamic. We press into that dynamic. And then we also ask ourselves perhaps a question that hits close to home. Can a church survive a pandemic? Can a church like ours survive a pandemic in a, in a city like ours? Can a church grow through a pandemic? Can we see lives changed in moments like these? We ask that question, and then we have to wrestle with this statement, for nothing will be impossible with God, and then consider, do we believe that? Do we believe that nothing will be impossible with God? Do we want to see a church grow through the pandemic? Do we want to see men and women discovering the difference Jesus makes in all of life? Do we want to see the Lord do things that only He can do? Well, if your answer to that is honestly yes, then let me encourage you to look at Mary again. Because right after this moment, you have a servant's heart being put before us to consider and a servant's heart that we should pray for. Listen to what Mary says in response to that statement. She submits, she surrenders in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. This is a remarkable response. She surrenders. She submits. She says, okay, I'm going to hold everything with an open hand and trust you with my life. And I know, I suspect that if what you are telling me is true, life for me in the near term is going to get awkward. It's going to get difficult. It's going to be hard. But I'm also trusting that in time, your glory will be revealed. In time, your son is going to come. 
That had to be a hard statement for this young girl to make because some of her dreams will not be realized as she had thought of them. She's not going to have the wedding ceremony that she hoped for. Not everything is going to fall into place perfectly for her in her little story, but the story that Jesus wants her to be a part of is far greater than that. And so she says, I am the Lord's servant. And I know that means people may talk about me behind my back, but I'm okay with that. I can endure the short-term struggles for long-term eternal gain. And this is where she is. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. This servant's heart. And you really see it being cultivated in this passage with a powerful progression as you discern her faith. Because she begins with, with wondering. She's wondering what kind of greeting she received from the angel in verse 29. And that word wondering is an accounting term. It speaks to this auditing factor. She's considering and wondering and auditing this experience to figure out, okay, what is real, what is right, what is true, what is lasting. And then she begins to question. She asks the question, how can this be since I have had since I have not had sexual relations with a man? So she's auditing, she's questioning, she's considering, she's being a model disciple who's working through this experience to understand what God is doing, working through it so that her faith might be strengthened and she can step into the future with confidence. A model disciple. And if you and I are going to dream God-sized dreams, if we want God's kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we would do well to wonder and to question and to consider. We would do well to get to a point of submission where we say, okay, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever He tells me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever He calls, whatever call He places upon my life, I'm going to answer. And if that means life gets hard for me in the short run, I'm okay with it. Because I have a much bigger kingdom and a much better reality that I'm tuning into. So Mary's servant, servant's heart, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And what's remarkable about, remarkable about this statement and her resolve to step into this life that God was calling her into is that years later, her son would do the same thing. Years later, her son would reflect a servant's heart. Perhaps the very same one that he saw modeled in her life as he was growing up under her care. Because one day you would find her son stepping into the Garden of Gethsemane and declaring, Father, not my will, but your will be done. A very similar submission, a very similar surrender. And yes, in the near term, that meant Jesus would have to bear a cross. He would be mocked. He would be ridiculed. He would be crucified. He would be put to shame. But in the long term, Jesus would wear a crown. Jesus would wear a crown. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to grow in the ways that you would have us grow? Would your Holy Spirit be at work within us to cultivate a servant's heart so that we would say with Mary, we are the Lord's servant. May it be done to us according to your word. Give us grace to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses daily so that we might follow her son, our Savior. 
And help us to see that though we may bear a crown across in the near term, we will wear crowns in the end. And so we love you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you lived for, all that you died for, all that you rose from the grave for. And would you give us grace to see your kingdom coming and your will being done here as it is in heaven. God, give us flashes, give us glimpses. Do the types of things that only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen.